The Creative Trust podcast acknowledges the traditional owners of the land on which we create and record this podcast as the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. My muse or the Paolo Sebastian muse is this idea of this strong, beautiful, confident heroine. And depending on the season and the collection, she might change, but the core of who she is is there. And it's that, it's that balance of that strength with the femininity and the beauty and the delicate and empowerment, all those things kind of delicately balanced together. The Creative Trust podcast is an exploration into the minds of some of the world's best creatives. We are endlessly fascinated with the ephemeral and the intangible. We make sense of it through our creative process. Over the last two decades, we have created countless installations, each one put up, pulled down, each one leaving an enduring mark on its audience. Gloss Creative and our stellar alumni share everything with you, how people become creative and what we know to be true about the creative process. Amanda Henderson founded Gloss Creative as her way of navigating creatively through life, learning early on that she could make audiences fall in love with environments simply by making them feel and experience something. Memories that last long after the physical immersion have gone. It crystallized her long-held belief that your business plan is to harness your unbridled creative force. And creative renewal is your most important weapon over time. Welcome to the Creative Trust. In our studio, we often talk about the qualities of emotion, the ephemeral and the unquantifiable, the things that are hard to touch and feel. And today I'm here in South Australia with founder and designer Paul Vassiliev of Paolo Sebastian. And I think he is is all of that. Everything, every touch point, everything he creates has this sort of unquantifiable magic that just literally exudes through everything that he and his beautiful atelier do. So welcome today, Paul. I'm so so excited to be here in gorgeous South Australia with the sun shining, even though it's winter. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for coming down and for having me on the show. Real honour. I first saw your collection in 2016 on that gorgeous, gorgeous runway that you and Chris Contos put together. Mm this beautiful spring garden and these gowns just literally floating down the runway. And I was just obsessed with that show. And ever since then, you know, I had sort of thought about things. And as it turns out, our gorgeous daughter Zara was getting married. And we spent one afternoon walking down a high street in Melbourne looking for a a gown, and within two hours of being there, we decided that really we needed to come here and have a magical experience. And the crossover was that I knew Robin Ingerson from the Fashion Festival. Mm. So I rang her and I said, do you think Paul would make something for Zara? And um, she was like, yeah, I'll give you an intro. And 
that was the most amazing intro that we ever had in the sense that the experience of your atelier as a client and as a customer was as magic as the product. And we will definitely talk about that today. I think it's really exciting to let our audience into your world. So part of your world is how you got here. And, you know, the question that is the most, I think, telling for me is always how people get creative. So how did you get creative? I think growing up as a, like from very young age, as you well know, I'm obsessed with Disney and very much grew up watching all the classic films. And um, I think that just kind of ignited this kind of world of dreaming and imagination. And for whatever reason, I think my grandmother sewed. And um, so I was around that when she would make clothes for myself and for my brothers. And I think I, I just had this fascination with kind of creating things out of nothing. So, you know, making a garment out of just flat fabric and being able to yeah transform like you know that cinderella moment mm. or you know like you see in sleeping beauty that was my favorite scene growing up was the dressmaking scene in sleeping beauty i was just i would watch it in slow motion on repeat every day <laughs> isn't that incredible that your brain just somehow locked onto that as something that you identified with it how old were you 3 years old i, I remember i would go i would get scrap wrapping paper and newspaper I would go into dad's shed and I would get scrap pieces of wood and I would build I'd get nails and hammer and make a mannequin and build the dress on on the mannequin and people would give mum you know scrap bits of fabric for me to to work with and I remember I used to just I, I would get so excited I said I use pegs I'd use needle and thread I'd use tape I'd use whatever I whatever I had available to me I I think I'm very blessed that my parents and my family and friends kind of encouraged that really helped to nurture that so you know both my parents are science background but they put me in art classes because they knew that that was what you loved what I loved and, and I needed further development on that and both are actually really good at drawing but I think they wanted me to develop those skills or help me develop those skills and 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 drive that passion for me. Mm. Dad, in different ways, because mum used to paint and like funnily enough, my my middle brother's a chemical engineer. Youngest brother's a physicist. Like my nonna is great at sewing. Nonna was real handyman. Dad is a chemist, Mm. but also is great at, you know, taking apart cars and putting them mm, back together. Mechanical and reasoning. Yeah, yeah, so understanding like the 3D and how things work mm. and how things are made and put mm. together. Mm. My mum's a real perfectionist with, mm. you know, anything that she does. Mm. So I think the combination of all those elements. Perfect storm. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Because, and then it ended up in, you know, what I do today. today. So Incredible. they all have a, a real big, have had a real big part to play in it. Mm. I love that. You must be using both sides of your brains. You really must be. <laughs> so when you're at school, how did your creativity show? I, or did it? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, it, I think in the very early years, like reception, uh, was slightly problematic uh, because I was very defiant because I would only do – I've kept – like my parents have kept all my old books – and one of the, th- I recently have been looking through them and um, I remember, 
I, and I have like a like not a photographic memory, but I remember things clear as really day. Well. And I remember this one time where we were learning about time, and this was in reception. Uh, we had to do clock faces, and I was always getting told off because all I would draw was girls in ball gowns, and people <laughs> would say to me like, "Where, where? Why can't you see the feet?" And like all these other five-year-old kids were saying, why can't you see the feet? And I would say, but it's a ball gown. You can't see her feet. You can't see Cinderella's feet. So I, the teachers were encouraging me to try and draw men or, or boys because mm, I would only draw mm. these elaborate ball gowns. Gowns. We had an assignment to do, to color in this clock face. And I ended up, I was like, oh, a face. So I drew on the clock eyes mouth, some hair, a neck, shoulders. The gown. <laughs> uh, the, start, the top of a dress, a necklace, <laughs> coloured it in, you know, fully like it's a face. And then the only thing that was ruining it were these clock hands. So I ripped them off, turned it into a nose and then handed it up. <laughs> and the teacher goes, uh, <laughs> the note on there is, this is not a clock. <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, it was just, and it was because that's not what I wanted to do. So That sounds like the title for your autobiography. <laughs> <laughs> this is not a clock, Paul. <laughs> so, yeah, there was a lot of, of that in the early years because I only wanted to, you know, I, we would do story time in school. And if it wasn't a Disney telling of the fairy tale, I didn't want to know about it or I would say that it's wrong. Um, I, it was really then if it wasn't yeah, Disney. Exactly. And like I planned in reception, I remember planning a costume day for the class, then told the teacher about it. So, so Miss Kelly, if you're listening, I'm sorry. But I remember <laughs> you know, the, the teacher came up to me and she said, um, Paul, everyone's talking about coming in costumes tomorrow. I said, yeah, we're going to have a costume day. I love it. And they did. <laughs> And really, we they went home did. and told their parents. Yeah, and they had we had a costume day. So maybe that was the first runway, really. Because yeah. <laughs> I knew because I had like my friends in the street. We all used to just play, and I, I would make costumes for them. And oh. um, like my every birthday party that I've had has been a dress up party. Different so, themes. Different themes. All different themes. All Disney. Uh, no, my twenty first was Disney. Um, my 30th was Heroes, Legends, and Icons. Perfect. Yeah, so there's been some some fun ones. And I guess it kind of comes into what we do here. It's the, the idea of transformation and, and just having fun. Mm. And yeah, so I think as I, as I grew up, I was able to channel my creativity a little yeah. bit more. It seems like there was never any doubt. It was so early on that this sort of, you crystallized what you loved. What a great gift that is. I mean, <laughs> obviously reception's a bit early maybe, but what a gift that was that you've, you're like an arrow just knowing where you're going. I get this feeling that, you know, from that very yeah. early age. So how, what happened when you got into like high school? And Well, I had already, going into high school, I knew that I was going to be a fashion designer. And there was, that was all What was I would... that moment when you actually turned just what you love doing into actually this is what I can do for my work and my life potentially? Well, I didn't know, like, because 
initially, if you had asked me when I was five, I wanted to be a vet because my best friend wanted to be a vet. Cute. So I didn't actually know what I wanted to be when I grew up because I didn't really give that much thought. I, I didn't know that it was a job. I didn't know that you could be a fashion designer. So how did you find that out? I think it was when I started making clothes for my friends just as for fun. And the first proper dress that I made was at age 11 for one of my best friends. And then another friend saw that dress and they wanted one. Then another friend wanted one. And then it started, a couple of my older friends were going to their school formal. So I was making school formal dresses. Beautiful. And that's when it kind of clicked that that's what I want. And I think as I became a little bit older, like around 10, I was aware of fashion, fashion shows, fashion designers. I think earlier, prior to that, I, I wasn't aware what a fashion designer was mm. i had you know I, I grew up watching old films and um, you know audrey hepburn and you know was fascinated by the i remember the first time seeing seeing roman holiday my nonna yeah. put it on for me because they were babysitting and nonna wanted to watch it because it's set in rome of course you know just amazed by this beauty and the cinematography and everything so i think all those influences kind of then came together and then I started thinking about you know what if I had a brand what would it be called and I'm shopping at Paul Vassiloff that doesn't really sound right and my my middle name is Sebastian so and Paolo is just Paul in Italian so it was you know my 11 year old friends and I (laughs) chatting about what's a better name for a brand so is that how it happened yeah amazing yeah and my first logo was actually my year 11 just design assignment I had come up with all these different logos and I just did a survey around the school and with my friends and the the one that had the most likes one uh, yeah amazing I love it so you've 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 had your school life what happens then you leave school what happens so before I left school so I I my mum and dad put me into sewing classes so from year nine yeah year nine I was doing every Wednesday I'd leave school early and I would go and do pattern making sewing crafting um Mm -hmm. a lady named Jenny Torelli who was an amazing mentor she agreed to kind of tutor me and that kind of really got the ball rolling Mm -hmm. with um you know because I I was working with just like Vogue patterns initially and as you all do yeah, yeah you know just experimenting with that and then, and, and you know, getting a sleeve from one pattern and a bodice from another pattern and trying to change it to do, or, or draping it on the mannequin and trying to, I didn't know draping was a thing. So I just taught it to myself because I knew what I wanted the fabric to do. And I would just try and create the shapes that I wanted. Then when I learned about pattern making, it opened up this whole other world and understanding the structure of garments and how to actually put things together. And I remember my teacher I remember Jenny saying to me, you'll get to a point where when you look at people and what they're wearing, you'll start to dissect the seam lines and work out how the things are made. And it's true. It's kind of like, um, I don't know if you've seen Queen's Gambit, but where she, I have. where she sees the chessboard. Oh my God, I love that series. That's kind of what happens for me is when I look at, say, your jacket right now, I kind of can see the pattern pieces in my head and how that goes together. 
mm-hmm. and the shape and the design lines. Yeah, it's I, I, I don't that. know I don't know where that comes that, from, yeah. but well, that I guess that's the learning of the craftsmanship, and I do see that in a lot of creative people where they become, you know, after doing things like thirty thousand times, you become the master <laughs> in the sense of the habit of your craft. I see often graphic designers or people like that who are creating and that skill or like you're saying, those seams are innate in mm. you. They're not, they're just, they become muscle memory. Yeah. And so you're not even thinking about that. You're creating and all of that is just behind you working through. Mm. Like when I used to look at Ross on, you know, when he was designing, you know, I used to watch his hands doing these amazing things, but really he's looking at the screen just creating yeah. what he's creating and I'm going, that muscle memory and all of that learning is just secondary to the creative. Mm. You know, when you're saying like with Queen's Gambit, you know, you're just seeing the vision, mm. you know, that's that's what's so fabulous. I think once, as you said, once you it opened up this whole new world and that became your craft, I guess, yeah. in a way, you know. And it's, you know, for me, like the pattern making is still the my absolute favorite part of the entire process. Mm. It's that that's the real passion part for me. So, yeah. So then from there, I was talking about nonstop starting my brand and putting on a fashion show. So then in 2007, which was my final year of high school, when I was picking my subjects, it was a subject called extension studies. And Thank God for extension <laughs> yeah. studies. And it's sort of that's sort of like the, it's become the research project that they now do, but it was a, it's a plan your own topic sort of thing. So my teacher said to me, you know, you have been harping on about starting your brand and, and having a fashion show, and this is your chance to do it. So I did, and went into it not knowing anything. I had been to a David Jones fashion show here in in the David Jones store in Rundle Mall and I was just like blown away I thought yeah this is what we need to do what I need to do so mum dad friends everyone like kind of came together to make it happen because we had absolutely no idea and uh, as to you know what was involved Mm. and I wanted to do it to raise money for Canteen the charity so we charged $10 a ticket. Fantastic. <laughs> we hired out a local hall and it was a big hall. And I remember walking in and going, oh, what have I done? We, Because it was set up for a wedding and it was massive when we first went, like site visit. And I thought this is just... It's, uh, we're going to look ridiculous. We're going to have this runway and like 10 people sitting around the runway and all this space. We ended up having 660 people turn up to that show who, and there was a line was down there? the street. The community, you know, wow. we had, Chris was there. So of Chris Contos, he was our VIP invite. So my mum <laughs> wrote to all the local media and news and Chris was one of them and he answered. And um, also we're talking about the lovely Chris Contos. Chris Contos. And he was si- I remember him sitting front row and everyone was like, oh my God. And <laughs> it was, you know, so exciting. Mm. And we had Morella Romano and, you know, just 
and Bridget from Finesse Models and, you know, all these people that we had just cold called invited and they came to this random fashion show. I had all my friends that I had made dresses for over the years. I'm like calling in the favor. You're You're the model. Whether you like it or not, you're modeling. I love it. So we did modeling school together. Like we, I, we, I taught Classes. them how to walk. Great. Um, just based on what I had seen uh, people do. And, and I, you know, who am I to instruct people on how to walk? I don't know <laughs> what they're doing. Good as anyone. <laughs> you know, so, um, so we did that, uh, hair and makeup. And we had, you know, people donate their time and help. And it was just amazing. And my mom, dad, uh, neighbors all banded together to build set. And, you know, for a, for an amateur show, it was it was a great set. I'm we had sure it was proper lighting, and yeah, you know, in the week of, I, and mind you, I did sixty four pieces in this collection. That's a lot. So yeah, it's it was a lot for for one person sewing. Seventeen year old. Yeah, <laughs> and <laughs> so I was insane. I was sewing till three a.m. and waking up the next morning, going to school, doing my work in the lunch break, and then leaving as soon as I could. And in, in any of my free lessons, I would go home just to keep sewing. And that week of it was very overwhelming. And I had, thankfully, all of like my family, friends around Everyone the helping. table, like sewing buttons and just taking what they could. And, the, you know, these are all, you know, mums and grandmothers and people that just knew how to sew. Uh, some of them could only sew buttons, but they would do what they could. So what was the feeling like when that? show happened it was the best it still is my one of my career highlights because it was just so pure and so new for everyone and it was this communal sense of triumph because it wasn't just about me it was the village that kind of rose rose and Mm. kind of helped this little kid with his dream you know, I'm eternally grateful to all those people that made that happen because wouldn't be here without it. And it was a big, lofty dream for that time. You and know, it came on, true. Yeah. I mean, isn't that a great lesson too, that I guess maybe you realised that this is a thing, you can do this. Mm. That must have given you like a lot of confidence. What happened next? Yeah. Like what, did you get written up in the advertiser? So yeah, so Chris Chris Contos <laughs> gave us a full, and he never lets me forget it. He gave us a full page in colour, which they Whoa. only used to do like black and white for most yeah. of those things in the social pages. And then from there, I got my first wedding dress order. So, um, and I remember I promised my parents that after that show, because that was in July of 2017, uh, 20, 2007, sorry, I promised my parents that I was going to then focus on the rest of my studies. Sure. Which, which I did because I was, you know, I was adamant that I really wanted to finish year 12 and, and do really well, just mainly for myself. Yes. But, you know, things were starting to take off. So I had, a, you know, the juggling act didn't stop as yes. we kind of thought that it may have but I guess the plan was for it to be a success so what did I think was going to happen I don't know yeah yeah well you just didn't know I guess yeah. yeah yeah and I mean I remember getting told by someone like if if this goes wrong you'll be it's a major setback for your career or a, ba- a bad start to your career so you better do it right and I was like oh okay no pressure <laughs> sure, no pressure and, <laughs> and then when you look at the gowns that you produced on that day do you feel they were 
linked to what you do now? Like were they, can you look at some of those shapes or some of those patterns that you have as your core signature? Can you see them reflected when you look at that? Clearly. It's it's (laughs) 15 15 years ago. We've come very far. (laughs) But there are, like I have a very strong connection to them. So it's, I, I don't know what's like someone else with fresh eyes looking at it might think, but there there are definitely linkages to what we're still doing today. And although it wasn't the most cohesive of collections in terms of color palettes and shapes and things, there was, you know, I did jeans in that collection. Mm. I, I, I like embroidered pockets with PS on, on the back. I yes. did denim jackets and I, I hand dyed most of the fabric and you know amazing but mum and dad's laundry was a mess because <laughs> <laughs> there was dye everywhere but because uh, I wanted ex- like precise colors and you know there was so much of that knowing I, I think wanting that having that vision in my head and wanting to get that out but that is the the groundwork of the aesthetic that we still have is very much was very much based in that original collection and how incredible is it when you think uh, that your parents were so supportive and so understanding about who you were and what you wanted to achieve? It's really interesting, you know, when we interview people, some people's um, parents don't support what mm. they do in the yeah. creative arts. Um, some people do, some people don't. Isn't that a great thing when a, a teacher or a mentor or your parents uh, yes, you know, vote. Mm. Yes, yeah. do that. Go, go and do that. It's such a great thing, isn't mm. it? And it's such a balance as well, I think. And I, I hope to be able to replicate that one day, if I ever am lucky enough to have kids that you know, because it wasn't a push either, because it can be the other side of the coin it can where be pushy, pushy. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. And yeah. you know, and my mum said like, if you weren't good, I would have told you. Like uh, if you're not going out singing, yeah. <laughs> you know, <and laughs> not going on the voice, on the voice, you know. So it's it's that fine balance of knowing what to encourage, I guess, and what to when to speak up, and but doing it in a kind way, yeah, <laughs> which yeah. they always did. I think their That's biggest lovely. thing was uh, more so. Mum was always worried because my mum's very gentle was always worried for me knowing that it's a hard industry and yes. didn't want me to be heartbroken, I think. Mm. And that's that's still a concern of hers. Oh, that is so, so lovely, isn't it? Does your mum come to your shows now? Oh, yeah. she's She doesn't – so she's always backstage. Yeah, beautiful. My mum is a real – she's always there. She doesn't – we've tried putting her in the front row no, in a nice dress. And one – actually, one show, Chris was like, you, you put her out there. And I actually – we brought one of the dresses I had made her she was working backstage and we had i think two sittings for the show and so she worked backstage for this first one and then we literally pushed her into hair and makeup and like forced her to put her dress on we sat her in the front row with dad and she was just so uncomfortable out of her element but you know yeah incredible so i'd love to start to talk about your creative process you mentioned earlier that the pattern making Um, you know, is part of it that you love. I guess part of our podcast is about people's process. Mm -hmm. And I guess the thing that I'm really interested in as a designer is 
how do you begin your process? Is it designed by vision, designed by doing? What's your creative process? Look, I think it does change for me depending on the season and there's no rhyme or reason to how it works or when the brain chooses to turn on. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Sometimes, you know, it just comes and I'm grateful to when it does and then it's a little bit clearer. But other times it's you really have to work at a little bit more because you know it's collection time and you know mm-hmm. that you need to produce something okay. because there's a deadline. With clients, I find it's different because you get inspiration from the client. Like, you know, when you guys mm. came in, mm. it, there was, it was a collaboration. Mm-hmm. So that's easy because there's a starting point. But when it's a collection, it's kind of solely on me to kind of come up with yet another theme and it's got to be a, it better be a good theme because 16 people are going to be spending 6 months working on it yeah you know it's not a small undertaking so mm. you know like when we did the disney collection that was probably the easiest thing that i've ever I didn't even have to i, I can't call it work it no was, brainer it was no brainer <laughs> yeah. it was the set so i was actually watching snow white and similar thing to pattern making it was watching Snow White and instead of seeing the finale of Snow White when the music came on I saw a runway even though I'm sitting in front of a TV watching a screen Mm. in my head I see a runway I saw the model I saw what she was wearing I saw the set I saw how she walked I saw how she turned I saw when she turned the lighting changed in that turn so it was done it was there for me I didn't Mm. have to do any work you just had to I just bring it out. had to then bring it out. Commit it to paper. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Whereas, um, and same thing happened when we did Swan Lake. I was at a concert and they were playing Tchaikovsky and the famous score of Swan Lake came on. And again, I saw a runway. I saw the opening and mm. I saw the smoke come in. Yeah. And exactly as I saw it was exactly what happened because I made sure, I, I noted all the details that I saw and made sure that exactly was what happened. And when you're in that creative process to start, do you find, like you're saying, you know, whenever it drops in, (laughs) but you know, there are, and I think a lot of creative people find that where there'll be things that come to you that are, you think about parts of things, they're unformed. Yes, definitely. um, And other things can be super formed. And it's interesting, do you come up with it immediately or do you layer over a few days you know it can be, like, yeah definitely or years even years, you know there yes. i've got ideas that i've had wild swans for example which is yes. our current collection yes. that's probably been on the back burner for two three years a story that i had come, come across i i've known about that story since i was you know eight years old yeah. and i've always loved it maybe as a miss, story. maybe miss kelly read it to maybe. you <laughs> <laughs> um and you know you you have maybe an idea for one dress but you think it's not quite enough for a collection, a collection just yet yeah. yeah or it's not the right time and i'm a big believer in science so i kind of let the like the nutcracker for example i was in david jones and i was shopping for a gift for my goddaughter and there was a Nutcracker book there. And again, I opened it and it was one of those press play and it played the song. Like you get the chills and you go, mm. oh, that could be a good idea. Mm. And then you start to think about it and all the ideas kind of then come. Flow. Other times, you know, I'm, I might see an image and then 
be inspired by, you know, who's that person in the image and then write my own story or I hear two words or and like Sleeping Garden, for example, when we did that, it was, you know, Secret Garden, Sleeping Garden. And then it kind of, when you when I said Sleeping Garden, it kind of came immediately kind of came to life, this mm. idea of this environment okay, who's the girl that's in the environment now and what is she wearing and what is she doing and what is she thinking, feeling, mm -hmm. what's happening to her? Mm -hmm. So, and then it's building on that. It's interesting. I feel like your creative approach is so layered in the sense that you're already, you know, talking about storytelling. Storytelling, I feel like, is, a, is an essential part of the Paolo Sebastian brand. Mm. Is that your approach? I think so. For me, I think the garments need to have some meaning to them or behind them so that they're, they're more than just cloths. And I think as humans, we're always seeking connection to things mm. and creating that purpose behind the garments. It's a touch point and it gives people a reason to want to look at it or be interested in it. Mm. And mm. like I know for myself, when there's a story to something, I want to know more about the story and then I read and I research mm -hmm. and then it's put in context. It's not just a, a dress, but it's a dress inspired by this and it makes sense because it's that part of the story, you know, whereas mm -hmm. I feel like people sometimes will look at fashion and they're quick to say, I don't like that or I really love that, but you don't really know the purpose of it. And if there is maybe a story about, you know, you don't, you don't have to like it, but then at least if, you understand the story, maybe you appreciate it. Mm, mm. And often I do feel it's the story behind a garment or a fear, you know, that gives you a feeling. Mm, exactly. It's, that's the difference. It's like, why is this so dreamy? And it's, you know, ultimately it's, you know, a beautiful gown, but above and beyond that, you know, it's been made with this dream or this ideal or this escape or this fantasy behind it that mm. I feel is so strong in your brand? Yeah, I think it's those details, like going back to the Disney collection, for example, mm. there was one dress that we did in that, the Cinderella ball gown, which is iconic to everyone. Mm. What a lot of people don't know is that gown was dyed the exact Pantone shade of her gown in the animated film. The embroidery on it are the exact stars and, you know, magic mm. dust from the fairy godmother's wand. And the neckline cut is the exact shape of her gown. So whether or not you know that there's a connection to Cinderella's gown or not, when you see that gown, there's mm. something about it that is familiar and that is heartwarming. Mm. And that's what that whole collection was that's about. Right. It was not necessarily meant to be about this is a Disney collection. It was meant to be about something heartwarming and that pulled on your heartstrings because it was familiar and sentimental. So I think with not just in when we're working with Disney, but in anything that we do, it's about, because this is couture, it's things that should be hopefully become precious heirlooms to people, particularly when you're talking about wedding gowns. These are things that are worn on one of the most special days of your life mm -hmm. that you look back on photos and, you know, your grandchildren might look back on those photos. And, you know, when we see like old 1950s wedding gowns, you mm -hmm. think, oh, they're so beautiful and there's something mm -hmm. so magical about them. I want to create that same magic mm -hmm. for people. 
and so that their grandchildren can look back and maybe want to wear their, their mm. grandmother's gown one day. Mm. I do feel like everything you create is completely timeless. Thank you. It, and yet it seems to have this sort of freshness about it as well. It, you know, it feels, they feel very modern as well. I, I guess that's maybe why they're suited to being heirlooms. You know, I think that's you know, maybe why they are so, they're timeless. That's incredible. And look, I don't know if it, like, I don't know if I go into it with that intent at the forefront of my mind, but it's definitely something that's in, is. that is in the background yes. there. Yeah. Because I think with, you know, we, we of course want to create things that are relevant and fresh and beautiful and light and serve a purpose. How would you describe the Paolo Sebastian brand in your own words? I think it's something that is timeless, elegant. There's this kind of balance to it. Or I like to think there's a balance to it between daydreams and reality and bringing a bit of heart and a bit of I don't know people's I hope there's emotion to it and then when people see the pieces that there's this sentimental kind of there it's a real there's a connection isn't there yeah connection mm. to it and mm. I don't know if that makes any sense yeah totally I just I just want to create things that make people happy and inspire people and give them a sense of a dream Beautiful. And I think that's what the brand does. I think it, it gives people the opportunity and the space to dream, to transform, and to be the most heightened version of themselves or their five-year-old self or, you know, whoever they want to be. And then hopefully in the – because, you know, I think we often get labeled as a bridal designer brand, but – there's so much, you know, we do tailoring, we do so much, mm. so many things. And for whatever part of your day that you're wearing a couture garment for, I hope that it's, you know, you, they can, the client can feel special in these pieces and feel like they're living a dream. Well, we've experienced that. We, that is definitely true. Describe to me what your perfect gown is. What are your gowns? How would you describe them? Light. Delicate, hopefully effortless, but surprisingly structured. Um, one of the things that I love most is creating beautiful form and shape, but making it as though that that's just your shape and this fabric just happened to fall on you and the embroidery is just kind of like an organic vine just wrapping around you. Like it's not overly considered, although it is. Yeah, effortless, I think. Effortless, yeah. That's beautiful. I hope. <laughs> uh, definitely. One of the things I've noticed that, you know, I mean, some of the gowns you've got are have really long trains, you know, very long dresses, you know, for big occasions. I noticed that you use a lot of tulle and obviously for our daughter's dress, Sarah's dress, was, you know, had layers and layers and, you know, a couple of metres or whatever trailing to the back. But what I noticed on the day when she wore it was that the tulle was very light. Mm. It didn't feel like a big heavy dress. No. It was literally floating, you know, like, and it's interesting that you talk about this lightness, this translucence to whatever you do. Talk to me about why you use tulle so much. For one, it's an amazing fabric and you know, there are, there are so many different varieties of tulle. 
which I found out. (laughs) (laughs) And I think most people, when I say chul to them, they go, oh, no, I I don't like that. But then when you see it and you touch it and you feel it, there's a difference. We tend to use a lot of Italian and French chul. I love it because one, like illusion, Italian illusion chul is, it's like invisible. And you can do so much with it. You can, it can be light, it can be airy. You can also make it really structured and it can create amazing volume with no weight. And I think most people want to be comfortable. Most people want to feel as though they're not wearing anything or it's a second skin. So with, with the chul, you're really able to create these beautiful shapes and also something that is light to wear and easy to wear. It breathes. It doesn't hold on to dirt. It doesn't crease. So it has, you can dye it any color that you want. And it just has this beautiful, dusty, like romantic, ethereal quality to it. And I think, you know, embroidery and beadwork always just sits so beautifully on it because it just disappears into it. You mentioned earlier on that you taught yourself to drape. Is chul something that you would also use for draping as well? Yeah. Definitely. Um, A lot of our patterns, particularly the really body form fitting ones, I'll drape the chul bodice or do chul draping on them. Like Zara's had Mm. the the Mm. v-neck drapes and Mm. then it went into the cape Mm. and you're able to really manipulate and do whatever you want with them. And I guess that manipulation on the body is the thing in the end that makes it feel so custom to the form that you're putting it on. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess that's part of the effortless, all this technique that you have somehow serves the magic, doesn't it? Mm. It really <laughs> does. It's interesting. So all of this magic, I'm really interested to hear what you would want to tell people about your atelier downstairs. I think people don't realize the work that goes into everything. I think People see the finished product and it's just, it comes out of this magical machine. What they don't realize is the the hands behind that and the hours and the skill and the background and the stories behind it. Like the team are just so incredibly talented and I'm so blessed to work with each and every one of them because they have all added to the richness of Pali Sebastian and what we do and what we're capable of doing. So, you know, some have background in tailoring, some have background in uh, dressmaking or in pattern making, some have worked at the ballet. So, you know, it they all have this amazing skill knowledge, set. skill set. Mm. And we are all so passionate about learning off of each other and growing that and then passing it on to the next generation. Because unfortunately, couture is a dying art form. It's mm. not something that is every day. widely seen. It's not every day. And, you know, these tech, it's easy to rush through something. It's really easy to, to quickly put something together. What's hard is doing it perfectly and doing it with real skill and finesse. And they are all so passionate about always doing a good job and it being beautiful and each part of the process being beautiful because they are so proud of each and every step and how they so 
sewed in that that channel of boning or how the zip is sitting and you know it's all those little fine details that people don't realize that the girls are so passionate about and um we uh and i think that's one silver lining to come out of covid was that we had the time to really sit together and share our knowledge because when you're working in a fast pace it's kind of like oh you know Pina is great at tailoring so we're going to give all the tailored pieces to Pina but we kind of went okay we need to somehow share all those elements with everyone and clone each other (laughs) yeah exactly so we all wrote down and documented all the different techniques that we are I guess experts in and trying to train each other so I did a, a lesson on draping with everyone and I made every, you know, we had mannequins. It was like a classroom. Great. We had mannequins laid out around the room. We put all the tables together. They all had their sheets of paper and I went through each step and then they had to make the same, the copy what I was doing. And then I went around and critiqued them and then they did it until it was perfect. And, you know, similarly, other people had other, uh, other areas of expertise expertise and they did the same thing so there's just such a wealth of knowledge and so much love and care that goes into what they do and they're fun you know we have a lot of fun and it's um you know because we're very privileged to be doing what we're doing and we appreciate that so um i think that's what a lot of people don't realize is that the heart and the work that goes into keeping this going I'm noticing that as you're talking, you're talking about two things and they seem to fit fairly seamlessly. You're talking to me about what you create as an artist, your visions and your designing, but you're also talking about the art of collaboration with your atelier, with your team. And I do see that the best brands and the best companies and those that have some kind of longevity have this beautiful mix of the creative and the teamwork mm. that goes with that. And I think obviously your atelier has that about it. Yeah. And as you said, you know, making every day fun, I find the same thing. It's all very well to have an idea, but how much fun is it to be doing it with you with some friends? Yeah. You know, how do you find these people? Do they come to you now? Do you find that's a bit of a, you're a bit of a magnet for those who also love? A, a little bit. I think mm. initially that hiring or building the team was probably the hardest thing I had to do because for the first four years, it was me doing the pattern making, the cutting, the sewing, mm. the lace placing, the client appointments, the the bookkeeping, all of those things. And a lot of those things are, you know, are not my skill set. Core. Yeah. Core cool, love. Cool, yeah. <laughs> you know, so they're, you know, a part of running a business, there's there's some necessities in there. But I knew that I had to build a team if I was going to ever get out of mum and dad's lounge room. And so hiring my first staff member and, you know, I'm not a bot. I was not a boss. I was not, never had planned to be anyone's boss at that stage. And I just wanted to create beautiful things. But when you, when you build a team and you, when you are the boss, you need to, you know, lead people. So that was, 
a learning curve in itself and something that I'm still learning at. But yeah, it was that, that initial letting go and taking a step back and allowing someone else to kind of have their input. And But it was a great thing and it really helped move the brand forward and move me forward because then it freed me up to do other things. And then, you know, hiring another person, another person. Initially, it was just local community, you know, I hired one person, a, a, a friend's mum, and then they recommended someone, and then they recommended someone else, and it was just kind of, it grew, grew from there. Beautiful. And then we moved into where we are now, and we had our first Adelaide Fashion Festival runway show, which then kind of reestablished the brand and what we were doing, and then it started attracting people, and that's when people started kind of we would put job ads out, like actual job ads. We wouldn't just say, "Can you hey, can ask you, someone's can you friend's mother's cousin?" <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And um, you know, then we started like I had to learn how to interview people and do all of all of those things, which I had never had an experience because this was my first job. So yeah, wow. And did no you idea. have help? Did people help with that, uh, or did yeah, you just well, sort of you know just do what you could? Did what we could, and you know, we all um, you know like. Chanel, for example, who you know, Sarah, they all have skills in areas that I, you know, they, they lift me up in those areas. So um, they would say, you know, it should be like this or it should be like that. And we would just make it the way that it should be and, Beautiful. and, and try and be as professional as we could. That's perfect, isn't it? Really? <laughs> I think that's the And we've since, genius. you know, had you know, proper accountants and lawyers and everyone come in yes. to then. And I've learned so much off of them. And I actually find it really interesting now, the accounting side of things and the, the legal side of things and HR. And I've, I've learned so much about that and, and actually running a proper business. But that was something that was not innate in me. Mm. But it's interesting how you get those skills and you're saying like that you actually enjoy that now. That's amazing. Hmm. I mean, obviously it's not core, but, it, no, you know. It's definitely not core, but it's it's. <laughs> It's not hated as it once was. <laughs> um, but yeah, so, and then now we just, it's ever growing. And then we know when someone new comes in that they, they're going to add value. And it's about making sure that they're the right fit for the culture. Because we have a real family culture here. And we want to make sure that, yeah, it, um, they can thrive and learn and, and us learn off of them. Tell me about how you worked with the Adelaide Fashion Festival and how you got to Paris. So obviously um, Robin Ingerson and Chris Contos were a part of that. Did you know them? How did that come about? So it first started with, obviously I knew Chris well before, um, but I remember Robin coming in the first time when she was appointed director of the festival. And I remember being she, she coming in and saying, you know, we, we would love for you to have your own show. And I remember being at first very skeptical and kind of going, you know, who is this person saying, like promising all these things and, you know, talking about having this show and what is it going to be? Is it, you know, how, what's the caliber going to be like? And then I very quickly started to see how serious she was and passionate. And we just hit it off from the beginning and 
what I loved so much about working with Robin and Chris was that expectation met delivery. And that's a big thing for me. They kind of, they understood my vision and the level that I wanted it to be at. And they met, if not exceeded that. And they would always preempt what I would want or how I would want something done or to be. And they got it. They got it. They just understood. And isn't that interesting? You know, that's another question that I've got is, what is your theory about why there are so many creative people in South Australia? It's interesting because when I, when I go overseas, I quite often run into people that are from South Australia. And I think it's because we're told in Adelaide that we can't dream big, that we shouldn't dream big, that it's a small town and that there's nothing here which is ridiculous because there is so much here. It's an amazing city and I I love Adelaide. It's why I choose to live here and and base everything out of here. But I think when you're told that, it almost pushes you or when there's that attitude, it almost pushes you to defy it and be extra creative and extra passionate and almost like you've got to prove these people wrong. I don't know if that's the right reason, but, or if that is one of the reasons, but yeah, there seems to be that That It's really thing. interesting, isn't it? Because there is so much that is creative in South Australia. When you think about how I grew up with the arts festivals, the ballet stopped here first, theatre was here, all of the forward-thinking things were here. You know, um, um, in government, you know, Don Dunstan in a safari suit and pink shorts. Like there was the outrageous stuff here. And that was when I grew up. And there was the magic cave, yeah. you know, the Christmas pageant. That fueled a whole lot in me. And I do think that it is to do with something like that as well, that there is so much creativity in South Australia. But you're right. You sort of, most people have to go away and prove themselves and then come back. Then come it's very, back, yeah. very interesting. And, you know, even when we were going to Paris, um, I remember Edwina McCann from Vogue saying to us, we were talking about, you know, the upcoming Adelaide Fashion Festival and and our showroom. And she's like, oh, you, don't worry, you guys always do it so well. And I was like, oh, isn't that so interesting that we, or, you know, this, there's this perception from the outside that we're doing it well when that, you know, it's to the right standard. But internally, it's always like, there's nothing here or we can't do it right or it's better interstate or overseas. So it's just, yeah, it's it's so interesting to me. And the things about South Australia that are often amazing are, that, once again, the, the intangibles. Mm. Yeah. I mean, obvious things are like the weather, yeah. the wineries, the beaches. <laughs> below. How do you make sure that you have time for reflective creativity, I'll call it, where you're designing and still spend time with the atelier during the day? How do you structure your day? It's a constant battle, I think, um, because I am so much required downstairs still. It's not a, I've trained you and you go off and make the dress, or here's the sketch, go make the dress. Mm. It's a real kind of balancing act, I think. And 
we're pretty honest with each other. Like I, Monday, I said, because we've got so much on at the moment, I said, guys, you know, I really need to focus on the next collection. So if you have questions, try to come to me with answers <laughs> so that it's quicker and there's, there's less um, muddling around. But I try when I'm doing a sketch to have as much information on there as possible so that it's clear for them. But, you know, when you're twirling and pattern making, there's always going to be notes and there's always going to be things that Evolutions. Change. Yeah. You know, mm. fabric's going to come in a shade that is 5% different to what we thought. But then that 5% throws everything else out. So we need to pick new colors and, you know, or the layering in different lighting is changing. So we need to, we need to make sure that the bodice and the skirt adjusting. is matching and adjusting. And that's all I, and everyone's got a different eye. So it's mm. kind of making sure that there's a balance there. But um, yeah, it, it, it is hard. I, I, I kind of, I do find it a struggle to be in, put my creative hat on and then I might be interrupted and two seconds later I've got to put, put my HR hat on or I've got to put my technical hat on. So it's, you're kind of in all these different zones in, 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 one day and it can be really crazy but um do you find you're mo are you most creative in the morning or the afternoon late at night late when at everyone night. has left i probably do a week's worth of work from seven o'clock till ten o'clock or even later like i if if i could i would work till 2 a.m and but start at 11 a.m <laughs> in the morning <laughs> definitely not a morning person I'm, I'm becoming that way um because that kind of that time frame doesn't work for anyone else <laughs> but me. Um, and I've, that's been probably a big struggle with the team because I, you know, when I was just me, I would work my own hours and I didn't have to consider people were starting work at 9am or at, you know, 8am. And going home to their families and going at home six. to their families at six <laughs> yeah. or 5.30, whatever. Um, I kind of, I just worked around the clock and did, did what I needed to do. So I, I then had to be present for those times. And if I wasn't present, they had questions and they couldn't go on with their work. And it's still the case because if when I'm mm. away or when I'm with a client in a meeting, I can't always just run downstairs. So it's, um, yeah, it's a constant. Constant juggle. Constant juggle. While we're in the atelier, you mentioned, you know, that everyone has their own view of color um you know what's blue to someone's green to someone else that sort of thing i'm interested to hear about what is your approach to color so i don't know if you can notice all the dusty <laughs> shades are <around>. definitely <laughs> i um I, I love color um and all the different nuances I tend to veer more towards the very soft, delicate, dusty, romantic color palettes, which can also be problematic because then once you've done, you know, 15 years worth of collections, you, you want them, you want some variety in there. But I find the, the color choices are inspired generally by the stories or the collections and they will dictate the colors. Mm. Because I've had the girls say, you know, please, can we do green in this collection? And I try really hard, but it's not a green collection, you know, and it doesn't work. 
So it's got to be whatever is is working. When you're working with a client, it's a it's a different ball game again because you're working with their coloring, and color can make or break the whole outfit. A a, a dress in baby blue, and then you take the same dress, same beadwork, same cut, and you do it in red. It's a different story. Mm. I, I once had a client that were they were kind of tossing up between the two. They were going to a wedding as a guest. And we had tried on a few different shapes and they really liked the deep V with the high split. And we were looking at a few different colors and they couldn't choose between red and blue. And I was like, well, look, the blue and the red, that you're different characters in those dresses. You rock up to a wedding mm-hmm. in, a, in a red floor length, high split down, deep cut. It's a different vibe. It's a different vibe <laughs> than the soft pastely blue. You can get away with anything in soft pastel mm-hmm. blue. So, it's really interesting yeah. that you're saying, you know, let that story lead you, the character that you want mm. to be. Yeah. That's a great idea. Because we're all different versions of ourselves in different moments of our day. Sometimes you might be a bit more romantic or you might be a bit stronger. Or you might be a bit hard. You might be tired. You might be casual. You might be, you know, you're going to the beach. You're going to a ball. You're going to... Um, I don't an, an office meeting. Mm. We all have different characters that we play in those we different play. moments. I love it. So let's just have the conversation about the color of white tulle. That was one of the first things I noticed when I was like, okay, so we'll have some white tulle, and you were like, well, we don't actually do white, and I'm like, they look white to me, and you go, no, no, that's not white. Tell me <laughs> about white. Okay, so this is the thing, white. I should say stark white or diamond white, I hate. And I don't actually keep any samples on my rack because I don't want anyone to choose them. Because I don't feel that they suit anyone. They don't do any justice to photography. They just, it's cheap. It doesn't, it, and, and for those of who that don't know what I'm talking about, it's that real, you know, bleached. Brilliant white. Brilliant sort of, white yeah. that has no life to it. We have every other shade of white that you can imagine. You do. So, um, and I mix. I mix colors as well. So, depending on the client's coloring, that's the first thing that I look at. Like, if you have pink undertones and blue eyes, I'm not going to put you in a warm shade of white. I'm going to put you in a cool shade of white because it's going to counteract the pink in your skin. So, and you can, and when you're talking about true, you can put, of different layers as you know mm. so you have your natural white which is kind of your neutral that's probably for bridal that's the classic white it's not yellow ivory because once you start going to ivories they can sometimes be yellow and anywhere you go any fabric supplier across the world they're going to have different names for different colors but natural white or silk white is that kind of really beautiful soft delicate white then you start going into your platinum whites and your pearls and beautiful grays and soft dusty colors or you go into your bones and your creamy they're more like your mushroom based whites then a good neutral because it's it's that brown base so you can get away with it a bit more than if it was your pink base you like your blush because that's a real hard color to wear not a lot of people realize that but you put blush on and if you've got pink undertones you're all of a sudden flushed or you know you then you go into your goldy antique tones 
you can look one color in some cases if you've got mm-hmm. light colored hair. So you have to be really careful. And then the beadwork, a lot of people like silver crystally beadwork. You put that on plain white and it looks cheap. You put it on a beautiful oyster-based white and it comes to life. So, And it also depends on the fabric as well, not just with chul, but with silks and chiffons. And they, they have different lives. I love that. I hope people have been writing that down. That is the lesson, people. Take note. I love it. That What and, a great explanation. And then, you know, when you're talking for a wedding, for example, when you're looking at bridesmaids and pairing that, I, I like looking at the wedding party as, as the photo. Who's standing in the photo and what does it all look like together? Because if you're in a blush white or a bone white duck egg blue is going to look so beautiful in contrast to that because you've got your pinks and your blues and then you're not going to put the mums in red because how heavy is that if you're putting the bridesmaids in black then put the bride in you can put her in any color but do the soft white so it's the contrast and you've got your whole bridal party that's in black and white presumably so it's it's looking at taking a holistic view to to the whole event, I guess. I love that. Your designs to me, as we've mentioned, are always surprising and fresh and timeless. I'm interested in hearing about your approach to fashion as as it is. How do you decide when you're looking at, you know, everyday fashion, how do you decide what parts of that that you like to bring in and what to leave at the door? What's that filtering system? I think it comes down to trends and I th- because what we are doing is more occasion wear, I guess, it, and being couture, it's, I try to step away from trends and what is happening in fashion and focus. I think that's why the story helps me because I'm, I'm constantly referencing historical, or generally re- referencing historical things if it's in the story. In terms of viewing fashion and what is happening in fashion, obviously we're all influenced by that and what latest colours are, latest trends or the mood. And that's exciting. That's the zeitgeist, isn't it? Yeah. And it's, it's, that is often dictated about what's happening in society. It's often a comment on what is happening in the world. So it can be really interesting and like I mentioned before you might not like something but if you understand it you can then appreciate it so there are plenty of things that are definitely very far from my personal aesthetic but I look at the craftsmanship I look at the messaging and I go wow that I can really or I think maybe I could never design something like that I wouldn't have I wouldn't even know where to begin designing something like that like I look Mm. at Balenciaga, for example, I think is a good one, is they're doing such a different thing. Or if you look at John Galliano or McQueen, John Galliano for Dior or McQueen back in the day, at the time was just so radical and so different. And then, you know, years later, it's, it becomes this beautiful heirloom piece mm. and something that is really loved and it is treasured. So, what I think is really interesting about fashion is quite often it is shocking at first or rejected at first and then years later is celebrated 
So I, uh, whenever I see the new shows coming out, I mean, it's just been Couture Week. Um, it's always interesting to think like, am I looking at something that's going to become iconic in a couple of years time? Mm. And in terms of being influenced by it, yeah, I find some way, sometimes it just seeps into our, like once it seeps into our daily life or becomes the the norm and then it kind of influences the the overall aesthetic for everyone. I don't know if that makes sense. No, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. It's really interesting. But I do like what you're saying about it being, you know, will this stand up in 10 years? And I guess that's the timeless thing, isn't it? Mm. And I love that you say that you've been led by the story. You know, that seems to be your internal core and your rudder in a way that guides you. Well, I think that's how you keep decisions. it original and fresh. I think that's where that comes from is because that's something that's so important to me. And when I, when I was studying in Italy, that was something that they really drilled into us was that don't look at fashion for your references. You need to look at your story. You need to look at your mood board for your references and be inspired by that. Because the second you go to look at other people's work, and I'm talking garments, that's when you dilute your creativity. So I, when I'm researching, I try to avoid runway fashion and or current fashion. And I try to really, you know, if this, if, for example, um, the Wild Swans, because it's the current collection, I'm trying to research when was that story set, where was it set, and what was the traditional garments worn in that period, and then drawing from those as my reference points. Or, you know, what kind of furniture did was in her house, and what mirror, what, what was the mirror there, and is there something from the mirror that I can take? Like in the Nutcracker one of the dresses, one of our most iconic dresses that we've done, the carousel dress. The idea of the carousel dress was because I thought, what kind of presents did Clara get on Christmas Eve? And I thought, oh, she probably got this beautiful Fabergé carousel. And then that inspired the idea for putting a carousel on the dress and making it look like a Christmas present, like a beautiful ornament. So It's such a beautiful dress, isn't it? Thanks. It's such a great moment. And at the time I thought, is anyone going to really like a dress with horses on it? And even Chanel was like, I don't know if it's going to work or if it's either going to be great or it's going to be terrible. So, and you don't know. And it's, it's, again, it's that collaborating with the team, like, you know, what's the right proportion for the horse and what are the right colors to do and how are we going to construct the skirt so that it looks light and not heavy. And it's, it's and all those minds coming into it. While we're on risk. And we often have this saying, Jahan often talks about chaos and failure. <laughs> and we, and sometimes, has there been anything like that that you've done? Obviously, that was a triumph. Has there been anything that you've gone, ah, that wasn't so great, maybe? <laughs> I guess what I'm asking is, what's your approach to making mistakes? And I think that there are no mistakes. There's only lessons. and. Definitely in my life and career, I've made plenty of mistakes, but you always need to just make it work. And I will never let something leave this building unless I, and we are all proud of it. And fortunately now I have a filtration system of all these people that I work with that, um, you know, 
if something's not great, hopefully it's getting picked up. And, you know, quality-wise, it's getting picked up straight away. But in terms of an aesthetic, we have such a candid, open dialogue downstairs that if something's not working, the we girls, all know. We all know. And yeah. you can see it. It's yeah. evident. Yeah. Um, I love that. And that that's from a collection standpoint in terms of what we're putting out there. But, you know, there's there's plenty of things that we go into blindly because there's no like the the first couple of trips to paris it could have been a massive massive failure Mm -hmm. i I went there you know so scared that it was going i was gonna have egg all over my face and you know Mm -hmm. just be this laughing stock and because i didn't know what i was doing i was just doing what i the best job that i thought i could do and I think that's the key to it is if you think that you're doing your absolute best and then a little bit extra, it's probably a good idea. And if it, if it feels good, if it doesn't feel good, if it doesn't feel right, then it's wrong and don't do it. And that's kind of, where, that's the only method I have for decision-making, <laughs> but you know, it's, it's, working so far um, it's working really well because i i do this <laughs> i i started palace fashion i do this job because i love it there's no other reason than i love it so and i do it because it's fun and we're all here because we want to have fun and enjoy ourselves and do something that we're truly passionate about so if something comes up an opportunity comes up and i think you know what i'm i'm not excited by that probably not going to do it because it's not authentic. Why would you? Mm. But certainly there along the way there's <laughs> the things that we've learned from it and we go, oh, next time we're going to do it like this. So next time we're going to do it like that. Of course. Talk to me about the balance of your life, um, the process of creativity, the highs and the lows, and how you balance your work outside your actual, you know, what happens in your actual life. How do you keep that balance? It's something that I probably only just feel like I'm getting right now it's taken 32 years (laughs) because I think the focus has for the last well the first 30 years of my life was really just focusing on my dream and making it a reality so I just there, there was no other life you know as an 18 year old my friends were all going out and going to parties and things and I was stuck at home sewing because I had wedding dress orders. So they, and I'm very, very fortunate that I have the best friends that any anyone could ever ask for. And, you know, I'm still friends with all the boys from high school, all my friends from my neighborhood, from my street, from um, school growing up, primary school, you know. Um, so I have really good friendship groups around me and I'm very blessed for that. And they knew that if I wasn't always able to go out with them or make it to things, they would try and come to me when they could. And they would sit with me when they sewed, when I was sewing. So they made it work. That's lovely, isn't it? Now, um, being a bit older, you know, I'm I'm engaged and um, I'm very fortunate. Anna is just like the most amazing person and I knew like the second that I met her that she was the one and she has been able to 
she's, I guess, very understanding and very supportive and patient because it's not, I, I guess it's not easy. I don't have a normal job. Like, let's be real. It's all consuming. Uh, yeah. It's not a normal life. So um, I'm very conscious of that because I think most people, they think that their partner's going to be able to be available after five o'clock and they're there and, you know, can be present all the time. Whereas she knows, and, and, and I know like her work is all consuming as well. So like we, I think we understand that with each other and we're there to support each other in that. So, you know, like she'll do little things like make sure that I've eaten or make sure that there's the, the, the meals are planned for the week and we'll try and plan that together on the weekend so that neither of us have to worry about that during the week. And, you know, when I'm working like back here, she's, she goes and gets like a liter of gelati for the team and, and just comes and sits with us. And, and then, you know, when she needs me, I'll, I'll be there for her. So it's just having that, that understanding and that respect for one another, but it's been hard to get to that point and being able to step back from the business enough so that it can still function but then also that I can have a life and maintain a relationship because that's also my dream and you know, having a family and, and, and all of that. And my family, her family, they've been, they've all been so supportive of that and, and helping to make sure that we um, can have as normal a life as possible. But, you know, 2019, I was, when we first started dating, I was going to Dubai to, China then I would be back for a couple of days and I was going to Melbourne I was back for a day and then went to Sydney for a week so you know it's it's not easy but uh, and how has COVID changed that well uh, I think COVID was the best thing for us because we um we moved in together and so we got to spend all this time together and you know she taught me to cook uh, you know I, I didn't cook or do a lot of that stuff so she taught me to cook and I became very domesticated in, during COVID. Um, something that she's very, very proud of. But yeah, it kind of gave us a chance to, well, it gave me a chance to just be normal, I think. Or have a, a, a somewhat of a, a normal life. Balanced life. A balanced life. Yeah. And yeah. isn't that great that that's come at this time? It seems perfect, really, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. You'd like, you wouldn't want it any other way, no, really. Because that's I kind incredible. of... I, kind of was getting to a point where I thought maybe that you can't have everything. Both. It wasn't, maybe it wasn't meant for me. And because I'm so blessed in my career to have everything that I could imagine. You know, I've lived, I've experienced more than most people get to in 10 lifetimes. So then how could I possibly be, be lucky enough to then find and meet, love my life who is equally as wonderful. And yeah, I just, I, I didn't mm. think that that would, I, I didn't mm. think that I would be fortunate enough to have both those things happen for me. Thank you for being so sharing. That is such a great answer. It's just, I'm sure everyone will be just completely <laughs> touched by that. That is incredible. What rules did you break? in creating Palo Sebastian? Plenty. <laughs> I think first and foremost was have some training. Um, you know, I, 
I had no business experience, as I said, before starting. You know, so many people were like, you have to go and work in the industry. You have to go and actually get a job so you know what <laughs> what it's like to work in or to run a business. I just kind of went into it blindly. And I think that was the biggest thing. I mean, don't do it in Adelaide. Don't do it at all. You know, it's too hard. It's too scary. It's too, there's no industry here. I think the Adelaide thing's amazing. Like, really, for you to have found to, I mean, when I think of you, I think of you as a global designer. Thank you. I think of you, yes, you're here in Adelaide, but I think of you as worldly. How has that worked? I think because from day one, I didn't set up as an Adelaide designer. I didn't want to be a local designer. I wanted to be an international brand. And from 10 years old, that was the mentality that I went into it with. And I'm by no means anywhere near. It shows. Where it feels we, international. <laughs> no, yeah. but I'm nowhere near where we, where I see us getting to or want to get to. But I think when you start out with that mindset, that's where you're going to get up. And if you treat, I never treated my clients like they were local clients. I treated them as they could be from anywhere even when they were just Adelaide clients. Not when I say just Adelaide, but, you know, they're local, local clients because it's mm. easy to, to meet and come into contact with local clients. But I wanted to give them an experience that could be in Paris or could be in Milan or could be in New York or anywhere. I want to mm. create magic for them. So I, and I, treat, I, I try to treat everyone like that and give everyone that experience whether you be from here or from Saudi Arabia or from Paris whether you're coming to our Adelaide Atelier or you're coming to our showroom in Paris I, w I want you to have that same magic. Well, it certainly works like works like that definitely. What have been the pinch me moments in your career? So I'm going to say the my first show working with Disney because and I think because before working out fashion design was a job and working out that well, I wasn't going to be a vet. Um, I thought maybe that I would be an animator at Disney. So working with them was an absolute dream come mm -hmm. true. And I got a private tour of the studios and I got to go into Walt's office and, you know, the piano there that was all the amazing songs were written on and originally played on experiencing that was just beyond. beyond anything that I could ever have imagined because I used to watch the making of these films and see the studios and the behind the scenes tours and I would think you know I, I would never even think that I would get to go there in my life. And how did the Disney collaboration come about? So Mary Costa who is the voice of Princess Aurora in the 1950 film when I talk about following your gut instinct for some reason, I felt the need to write to her and just say thank you because we were moving to our current studio location and um, shifting atelier and everything. And I was packing up the rooms into boxes and packing up my office. And I had Disney music playing on the background, as you do. And Once Upon a Dream came on. And we had just done our Sleeping Garden collection, which was kind of loosely inspired by that song. And that is a film that 
for me has always inspired me the the artistry the you talk to anyone that loves animation and they'll tell you that sleeping beauty is one of the greatest masterpieces ever created because the the color palette and you can see it in my work the color palette is very much linked to that the music this the score is inspired by tchaikovsky the the voice acting is just every everything is so considered and so beautiful so i set upon writing this letter to Marin costa just to say thank you you've been such a huge inspiration to me in my life and i sent her my lookbook and a sketch of her and i kind of sent it off not thinking anything would come of it but i just felt that it was something that i had to do and a couple of months later i got a phone call and mary was on the other line wow and she was so gracious and so sweet and exactly what you would expect from a disney princess and we just hit it off like we talked for over an hour um just about disney and about fashion and you know she she sang at president kennedy's funeral she um she used to sing with dean martin and frank sinatra and bing crosby and she's just she opened the oscars one year she just is an incredible lady and we kept in touch over the years and um one year after the Oscars, she called me and she said, oh, I, I was watching the Oscars, but I didn't see any of your dresses this year. I said, oh, you know, Mary, like it's, it's hard. We, we try our best, but, you know, we don't always get a, a placement. And she said, you know, well, I've still got contacts at Disney. If there's anything you need, you let me know. And then a couple of months later, I was watching Snow White and I had the idea for this runway show. And it was coming up to our 10 years and I had to think of a theme for our AFF, Adelaide Fashion Festival Runway Collection. And I was like, it has to be Disney. But I don't want it to just be inspired by Disney. I want it to be Disney. Disney. Official, collaborated, like have them on board, want them to know about it. So I thought I'll call Mary. Called her. She's like, okay, leave it with me. And then the next day I get a call from the head of Disney publicity in the States and they said, okay, so Mary's called us and she's told us about you and she's shown us your website and your videos. And we think it's, you know, she said that you had an idea and we feel that your brand is a really good fit with our brand. So what idea did you, what ideas did you have? And so I put together a little presentation and they got back to me really, really quickly. And before I knew it, I was liaising with Disney Australia and they, they're amazing there they arranged for like full white glove tour of the studio and they said you know whatever you want to do we're we're open to it and we want you to have the full experience so I got to go to Disneyland for two days I got the tour of the studio and they granted me the rights to use their lyrics on the dresses and pretty much gave me because everyone says you know it was it hard working Mm, with mm. such a big brand but they kind of just let me. I guess because you're thing. so aligned. I think because I, I made it very clear that it wasn't just a collection, or it, I wasn't just going to take their brand and do whatever with it. It was really about creating something special and heartfelt, and not just because I think initially the press, when that collection, when we announced that that collaboration was happening. They were just like, oh, it's just going to be princess dresses. But 
it was so much more layered than that. And once people saw it and they saw the runway, they heard the music and they really understood that there was a lot of thought and love and care behind behind it. So there were so many things that were considered that people will never even understand that the level of depth that we went into to really bring that collection together and the different nuances and you know the way the hair was done you know all the if you look at the runway show all their hair curls underneath underneath, just like aurora's in the film and you know the makeup is my, my makeup reference photos were animated characters but you look at you look at the runway and it, it fits it's clean and it's light just like a, a disney movie because it's i think people think disney and they think mickey mouse mickey mouse yeah. or shiny and yes. it, they don't realize that they're these really layered characters or you know they talk about cinderella and or, or little mermaid just giving up her voice for a man if you watch the disney retelling of those stories it's hardly that it's about these characters that anyone can identify with that talk about their hopes and their dreams and they go through this struggle to then find acceptance or find love and find happiness and that's what the collection was about it was about these the pure the purity of these dreams and and bringing them to fruition and i think that's what's so magical about disney so then you know having that that all offered to me to be able to work with and and the biggest the, the biggest struggle was after the collection was what am I going to do now? Because I've just worked on the best thing that I'm mm-hmm. ever going to, you know, the most exciting, most wonderful thing that I'm ever going to get to work on is done. <laughs> <laughs> Tick. So, yeah, what do I do? Where to now? Yeah. So that was, in answer to your question, that was a massive pinch me moment. That is probably the best pinch me moment we've had. Yeah. You know, that's pretty, pretty <laughs> incredible. You, I mean, on that note, you, in your very short life, really have achieved so much. You're so prolific and you've really, I think, you know, that momentum can really only come something from deep within. So I guess following on from that Disney thing, what is next for your brand? You know, you've got another 60 years, (laughs) you know, of work to go (laughs) at least. So where do you see the brand going? What's your attitude towards that? You know, like, wow, you've climbed peaks people, you know, can only dream of and you're only 32. So how do you rationalise that? I think because the goals are so have been so lofty from the beginning, there's still such a long way to go. And I think me personally, I'm never happy with, even when I've done something like the Disney collection, loved it, was really proud of it, but I would do it all over again and I would change, I could, I could change things. You know, I, yes. I never, I'm never content with, yes. with even a-, a job well done. There's always something that I want to do better or change or learn from. So, which I think that that's the whole, if, if you're happy with the job that you've done, there's no reason to do it again. Or to, to do something out, you know, to, to do another collection. Why, if you if you're so proud of and happy with it, um, you can be proud with of of the work that you've done. But I think there's always room to better yourself. Reaching haute couture has always been my dream, and has been the dream since ten years old. And understanding the 
magnitude of what that title brings and the responsibility and the respect that it demands is something that we are constantly working towards. And us being present in Paris is, is all part of that. And I'm hoping that one day that we get to that point and then beyond that point, you know, then once we get there, then ready to wear and, and other products, shoes, handbags, and being able to give clients an opportunity to bring that, the magic that's in the couture collections into their everyday life. Every day. Wouldn't that be fabulous? Because I, I just want to create beautiful things, beautiful things that people love and appreciate, hopefully love and appreciate, made of beautiful fabrics. And as long as there's beautiful fabrics and as long as there's um, people that want to wear beautiful things, then we have a purpose. And I, I do love, obviously, the mention of the word Paris makes us all excited, doesn't it? <laughs> um, I'm, I'm envisaging that, you know, the atelier over there as well, maybe. I don't know. Mm. One Who day. Knows? Who knows? Who knows? Do it all. Adelaide, Paris. <laughs> all right. We've come to the part of the podcast where I ask you some uh, quick fire stuff. So what happens with this is hilarious. It's, we start out quick fire, but it always slows down because they're always, <laughs> Not so quick. There's so, yeah, there's always so many great things come from this. But in the first case, who inspires you? My family. My family, Anna, my nonna, friends, they just seeing the love and kindness and support that are, and my team that, that come out of all of those people that are in my life propel me and push me and inspire me to go on and, and keep going on. I love that. Best advice you've received so far? Best thing that I've received came from Mary Costa. And this advice actually was given to her by Walt Disney. So oh, this is serious, this is serious advice. Stuff. So it's the four D's. So she said, you know, you start with your dream, but you need more to it than just a dream. So you need to have your dream, but you also need to have determination, dedication, and discipline to achieve that dream. So I thought that was pretty good advice. And I think, and the other thing that I, so that's something that I try to pass on to all young people or anyone that wants to listen. But the other thing that I will also say is something that uh, my mum said to me, which was stay true to who you are. Beautiful. That's, yeah, that's perfect. So you're a fashion designer, Paul. Who or what is your muse? I think my muse or the Palace Bastion muse is this idea of this strong, beautiful, confident heroine. And depending on the season and the collection, she might change, but the core of who she is is there. And it's that, it's that balance of that strength with the femininity and the beauty and the delicate and empowerment, all those things kind of delicately balanced together. You can really see that in your work as well. It's, it is self-evident, isn't it? Dreamer or organizer? Dreamer. <laughs> yeah. Clearly. Next. Favorite. <laughs> to a fault to a fault. Yep. Uh, favorite city? Paris. Because? Since I went there the first time, it's, I am just in, in love with it. It's like I, I'm walking around like it's Le Villon Rose and 
my friends have even said to me, you know, some people don't like Paris. I can, I can't understand, but I'm. You have to be quiet in that conversation. (laughs) I, 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 I walk around Paris and I see it in black and white and in through a 1950s lens, I really romanticize Paris. And, but for me, when I'm in Paris, things happen to me like it is in this romantic Audrey Hepburn film. So I, I can't help but see it in that light because it has been this really magical place for me. And I, I, I love, you know, Positano and I love Rome and I love all these places, but there's something that always takes me back to Paris. It's the, the magic in, that's in the air there. Best restaurant anywhere. So we have some great r- local restaurants here in Adelaide. You really do. Um, there's a few, fa- like Ostudio Oggi, also Ruby Red Flamingo. They're my local favorites, but I'm going to also say La Sponda in Positano and La Tagliata, probably some of the best food, aside from my nonna's cooking, my mom's cooking. Of course. Uh, and Anna's cooking and my mother-in-law's cooking. <laughs> <laughs> just round all those out. <laughs> but um, yeah, it's just... If anyone gets the opportunity to go there, it is an experience. It's, you know, on a cliff top and you see the whole of Positano in front of you and it is just incredible. Potential honeymoon destination. Maybe. There you go. <laughs> see, solving problems all the time. Best mannered celebrity. Ooh, there's a few. So Carrie Bickmore, who we've worked with extensively, who is just so beautiful and kind. Ada Nicodemou, Michelle Bridges, Kylie Gillies, Delta Goodrum, I would say are all my ones that I've worked with quite closely and have been, I think, quite pivotal for me as well, particularly like Carrie with her gold, when she won the gold Logie in our dress, was such a big moment for, for both of us and really helped to push us forward and, and gave us that stage and that presence. Mm, definitely. But they all sound But like they've been, incredible. you know, like, and, uh, and Danny Minogue as well, like, they, like they'll message me for it, just kind little things. Like Ada messaged me the other day and just checking in. Beautiful. You know, like mm. kind little things that they, mm. they don't have to do, but it's the, it's the little things. And it's that, that relationship That relationship go a bit above and beyond and um, means a lot to me. That's beautiful. All right. Favorite embroidery or most used stitch in the atelier? Ooh. Most used stitch, I'm gonna say cross stitching. We do a lot of cross stitching. So describe which, that so in detail. It's a stitch that you won't see on anything. It's hidden. It's always hidden underneath in used in corsets. It's it really secures things. So you sometimes use it on a hem or if you want to hand overlock something or if you want to like if we're working with Georgette and we want to, we don't want to put a seam or, or roll it and we just want to keep it nice and flush, we'll kind of, it's like, mm. it, it looks like, like little the crosses. the architecture. Yeah. A little bit. It's, it's little crosses and it's little precise stitches. And I, I was taught it by Tina who works here and she, she's been a tailorist for like 35 years. She trained me in tailoring initially one of the people that trained me in tailoring initially. And I remember if my stitches weren't even an exactly, you know, certain width, it would all come undone and do it again. So it's right to the point now where it's, you know, it becomes second nature. 
and all the girls here now do it and and uh, it's so meticulous and neat and beautiful but the shame of it is that you never never see it never see it it's completely it's completely covered wow that's that's incredible uh, basting stitches as well that kind of holds everything together they all get ripped out at the end but that's if you're doing a tailored piece the whole if anyone's seen or had a a tailored suit being made you see all this white stitching all over it that doesn't stay in the suit that gets ripped out but it holds all the linings and interlinings together but i love the look of it i love seeing a a suit being worked on because the stitches are so beautiful and it's such a shame that they just Mm. disappear Favorite embroidery, uh, that's a hard one because I obviously love embroidery. Um, I love working with cut work. So cut work is basically if you like the swans, me, yeah, like the yeah, swans, yeah. like with. So if you've got, say, you've got a ground of tulle or say tulle, and then you want a particular motif, like a swan, for example, you cut out the swan, embroider around it, and you cut the fabric underneath away, so it becomes almost this mosaic of mm. fabrics mm. and then you you bead over it to cover the seams or the stitches and it just becomes this beautiful art piece mm. that sounds absolutely beautiful are you back of house or front of house i'm both okay i am front of house when i need to be because my job requires that i am like today, like today. <laughs> but back of house is where I'm most comfortable. Like I never sit and watch our shows. I'm always in the back so with you, the girls. How many times have you sat out the front? Once and I regretted it. Absolutely regretted it because I wasn't happy with the way a skirt was sitting when the model had been sent out. And if I was backstage, it would have been, I would have picked it up before because I normally do the final check. That's my. That's where I'm most comfortable because the the team kind of get all the the models ready, and then I do the final the check. final check. And in this instance, I snuck out for the end of the show, and I wasn't there because I just I really because people was like, oh, well, you never watch your shows, you know what a shame. Yes. And so I went out and I regretted it. Oh, well, that's a good lesson. Yeah, then, so, isn't ne- it? so never again. Never again. <laughs> Do you have a quote that you'd like to share? Yes. Again, it's a Disney one. <laughs> we love but, them. Um, all of our dreams can come true if we have the courage to pursue them. And that's something that I am constantly reminding myself that everything is possible. And I'm living proof of that. That any, you know, Alice Fashion is living proof of that, that anything is possible. If you dream it, believe it, you can do it. Paul, thank you so much for your time today. It has been incredible. Thank you so much for just giving all of yourself to our listeners. Honestly, everyone's just going to adore this. I can't wait for it to be out so everyone can share in it. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much for having me. And congratulations. And this is amazing what you're doing. It's so much fun. I get to come to amazing places (laughs) and talk to incredible people. What's not to love? Thank you so much. Thank you.